Blog Talk Radio. everybody what is up everybody welcome to the show um we got an awesome show for you today on martin luther king day happy martin luther king day everybody we actually have a um a holiday that means something a holiday that uh i don't know is not just about materialism consumerism um whatever nonsense it's uh you know, commemorating a guy who deserves a holiday perhaps more than anybody ever. So, you know, it's always it's always something that I think is worth pointing out, worth mentioning. Usually I do a little tribute and I give you guys the uh the my famous MLK quotes, but I've done that like five or six years now, so I'll let it go for this year. But just know that this is not only a guy who focused narrowly on racial justice he also um, started focusing heavily on economic justice and justice in terms of foreign policy, and it was at that point that he was murdered. So, I mean, take away from that whatever you want, but the fact of the matter is he was fighting for justice uh, in every area, and at some point it was no longer tolerated, and um, he was killed. So, uh, anyway... Happy Martin Luther King Day, everybody. A lot of stuff to get to today. Let me tell you a little bit about what you have to look forward to. Um, we got some Republican Congress people who are already talking about impeaching Joe Biden. I, I don't even, like, how do you even respond to that? I genuinely don't know. Um, but I want to lead with that. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's quite the character. We'll talk about that. Uh, James Comey is arguing that perhaps Biden should consider pardoning Donald Trump. 
what? <laughs> we'll talk about that. Trump's approval rating at a new low. A little bit of a, a bragging segment because I absolutely nailed it in terms of the specifics. The My Pillow guy is on a crusade to make Trump president for eight years and is getting really creepy and really theocratic. Pamela Anderson is trying to get Julian Assange pardoned. So that's uh, hopefully that works. Who knows if it will? And um, later on in the show, CNN is flat out advocating censorship. So getting pretty ugly, man. I just yawned. I don't know if in all the years of doing this show I've ever yawned on air, but there you have it. I had my caffeine, still a little tired, don't know why. But anyway, let's uh, let's get started, and like I said, we'll do that with the issue of impeachment. Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, a brand new congressperson from Georgia, and I think she's one of the people who believes in QAnon. And so now we have people like this making it to Congress. Unsurprising, I guess, because you have Donald Trump became president of the United States of America. That seems silly enough at face value. So why not? Why not throw some, some uh, QAnon Congress people in there as well? Well, she's, uh, she's extra silly. And she went on one of the extra silly networks. I believe this is Newsmax. And um, she's going to float a brand new idea. This is, I believe, her first act entering Congress. Take a look at this. Congresswoman, I understand, though, you have something uh, pressing, something important, and something new you'd like to share with everybody. Yes, I, I would like to announce on behalf of the American people, we have to make sure that our leaders are held accountable. We cannot have a president of the United States that is willing to abuse the power of the office of the presidency um, and be easily bought off by foreign governments, uh, foreign Chinese or Chinese energy companies, Ukrainian energy companies. So on January 21st, I will be filing articles of impeachment on Joe Biden. Wow. Articles of impeachment on Joe Biden on his first full day as president. I'm looking at Hunter Biden right now, so uh, we're talking about Joe. Obviously, we know Hunter's got issues as well. Um, how is that going to work? You are a freshman. Uh, you're in the minority. Um, what will happen next? Is this symbolic, or can you really do something uh, about this? Well, like I said, I'm, I'm a big believer in having people in office that are actually willing to do the job. And I, I can't imagine people in this country uh, being so fearful of the future of a Biden presidency that they may be willing to commit violence like they did in the Capitol here in Washington, D.C. We cannot have that. I do not condone that violence. The American people need hope. They need to know that there are Republicans in Congress that are willing to stand up and fight for them, regardless of being in a minority, regardless of having all odds against us, against me, or against anyone in Congress. We have to hold people accountable. Hold people accountable for what? President yet. He hasn't done Dickie McGee's acts yet. Like, I get it. He's going to do stuff that you disagree with because you're a Republican and he's a Democrat and there are differences ideologically, although, unfortunately, I don't think there are nearly enough ideological differences, but there's some, of course. So do you not understand the chain of events and how it's supposed to work? Like, he has to do some shit before you're like, oh, I'm going to impeach. 
you can't, and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I don't think impeachment works. Like, you can't impeach a president for some crime that was done outside of when they're in power in their official capacity. So, you know, you can't pull some sort of crime. Like Trump, for example, you know, he, I would argue he's, he's done crimes for his entire adult life. Super sketchy. You cannot be a real estate developer in New York in the 80s and not have, like, deep ties to the mafia, for example. So I'm sure he was engaged in crimes of, of different magnitude. But, like, you can't decide, I'm going to pull up something from 1987 and impeach Trump based off that crime. You can't decide, I'm going to pull up something from 2014 or 2015 and say, I'm going to impeach Trump for that. It has to be something done while in office. So, you know, they did go after him for you know, what was it, the, I believe the, the Ukraine phone call, and that was ta- tangentially related to the Russia scandal, and, you know, now they went after him for egging on the insurrection, um, but fact of the matter is, those things, agree or disagree with them impeaching him, they were done while he was in office. You know, I was arguing, yeah, go after him for the emoluments clause, because that's just a fancy way of saying being corrupt, you know, taking money from foreign governments and doing favors for them. So, Funny enough, her argument, theoretically, it makes sense because she says he's, Biden's bought off by foreign governments like China and Ukraine, and there's evidence of that. You know, fair enough. I, I think Biden and his family, they are corrupt in the same way that the Clinton Foundation was corrupt and in the same way the Trumps are corrupt. But, like, you have to wait until he's in office and some crime gets done while in office. You know, so he would have to accept the favors from China and Ukraine and then do favors for China and Ukraine while in office. And obviously, ideally, you'd, you'd need there to be some sort of quid pro quo, um, although I do think that's kind of weaselly, and sometimes the quid pro quo is obvious but silent. They don't actually spell it out word for word. But, like, she's not even waiting until something happens while he's in office. She's just like, I don't like him. He's a Democrat. Let's impeach him. And, I mean, listen, I would be a lot more sympathetic to this argument if she was consistent and cared about Trump's corruption. And she's not, and she doesn't. So she says, oh, Biden and the business deals with China and Ukraine, it's super sketchy, we gotta stop that. Agreed. Now, do you have any thoughts on Trump with Israel and Saudi Arabia? Anything at all? I mean, Jared Kushner took millions of dollars from Israeli banks. And then, lo and behold, would you look at that, the Trump administration gave Israel basically every single thing they wanted. So how can that be? Are you okay with that? You don't think, hey, maybe there's some personal favors being done here? You know, a lot was made of the Russia scandal, but what people don't remember is that there was an Israel scandal where the incoming administration, before they were actually in power, they created a back channel to Israel to try to help Israel at the UN and and slap down the official U.S. government rebuke over the occupied territories. So there was some... There was something going on where there was collusion, dare I say, behind the scenes between the Israeli government and the Trump administration. Do you not see a problem with that? Do you not see a problem with Saudi Arabia giving Trump hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars through his hotel to Trump, and then Trump turning around and giving them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal as they committed genocide in Yemen? I mean, this is, to me, this was like the biggest scandal that wasn't treated like it's a big scandal. But yes, the Trump, the Trump family was profiting off of Saudi Arabia and 
Then they turned around and gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal and actively helped facilitate the genocide in Yemen that's being carried out with our weapons. That seems like a big scandal to me. Now, if you don't have anything to say about the sketchy Trump business connections to Saudi Arabia, to Israel, Turkey, there's some others, by the way, they're all over the place. If you have nothing to say about that and you don't think that's wrong, then I need you to www.shutthefuckup.org when it comes to Biden. Now, if you're consistent, okay, then I'll hear you out. And there are plenty of people who are consistent. There are plenty of people who are concerned about the corruption um, across partisan lines. I'm one of them. I called out the Clinton Foundation for being colossally corrupt. You want to know why? Because the Clinton Foundation was colossally corrupt. You know, I called out um, Biden and his family being corrupt. There's a big article in Politico. This is before Biden was ever running for president. And so the media was being a little more objective when it came to the Biden family. Um, There were incredible details about how Biden and his entire family profited off of the Biden name. And there was a lot of pay-to-play corruption going on. That's corrupt. I'll call it out. But by the same token, you damn well better call out the fact that Ivanka and Jared made over $100 million while working in the White House. The fact that they even got jobs in the White House is a scandal enough. Like, that's nepotism 101 through and through. Like, you should all be against that. Imagine Hillary hired Chelsea or something. Everybody be like, what the fuck is this? You can't do that. So Trump hired his own family, and then lo and behold, look at that. They made over $100 million while they're in the White House. You don't think some of that money's coming from sketchy places and they're not returning the favors because they have power? Of course that's the case. So, if you, again, if you're not going to call that out, I don't give a shit what you have to say about Joe Biden. I don't care because you're a partisan hack and you're full of shit and you don't actually care about corruption. So, but again, if you do, if you're objective about it, if you call it out wherever it applies, well, then I'll listen to you because then I think you're reasonable. Um, but my favorite part, though, was when she tries to blame the attempted insurrection on Joe Biden. I thought that was cute. She makes it seem like, I mean, what are we going to do? What happens when there's no accountability is you get, like, the people who storm the Capitol. I mean, it is what it is. Imagine, imagine flipping the parties there and see if she's so sympathetic in her explanation, you know? And it's inconceivable. There's no way. And to blame Biden for what happened at the Capitol is ridiculous. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into what happened at the Capitol. Some of it does involve poverty and degradation and people being left behind by a system. But a lot of it's also just brainwashing from Newsmax and One American News Network and Trump pretending like it's a fraudulent election when it's not a fraudulent election. But to blame the attempted insurrection on Joe Biden, I mean, these people, the fact of the matter is she works backwards from her conclusion. And her conclusion always is Biden bad, Democrats bad. And she's like a cartoon character, you know, drunk on QAnon impeaching Biden on day one. Listen, I'm no fan of Joe Biden. Everybody knows I'm no fan of Joe Biden. I'm super critical of Joe Biden. I did not want him winning this primary uh, against, you know, the other Democrats in the field. Um, But he won it. And, you know, in the same way, I wish Trump would do good things for the country. I wish Biden would do good things for the country. But this idea that you impeach him before he's even done anything, that says a lot about what's going to happen moving forward. And Biden better wake up in this sense. He's got this naive view that like, well, the fever is going to break with Trump. And after Trump, Republicans will get a lot more reasonable. What, Joe, what are you talking about? How much evidence do you need to the contrary? You were vice president under Barack Obama. There was historic obstruction under Barack Obama. They even obstructed when Obama did their ideas, when Obama wanted to cut taxes for small businesses, and when Obama 
did the Heritage Foundation health care plan, the Mitt Romney health care plan. That was a right-wing health care plan. He did it and still got zero Republican votes. It's not going to work with you. And if they ever do work with you, ever, it would only be on the worst priorities, like cutting Social Security and Medicare. So, you know, you better wake up and stop being ridiculous and stop thinking that there's some sort of hope. But the fact of the matter is, Joe Biden half agrees with these people anyway, so he doesn't view their ideology as egregious, and you and I do view their ideology as egregious, so that's why he's a little more sympathetic to them overall. But, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I mean, I mean, let's be honest. There is no working with somebody like this because there is no coherent ideology or philosophy. There's just raw partisan garbage going on in her head. That's it. There's no ideology. I mean, listen, there are people you can work with across the aisle on certain issues. You know, you want to work with somebody like Rand Paul on criminal justice reform or ending wars? Great. No problem. In fact, I encourage that. Uh, You want to work with somebody like Hawley on $2,000 checks? Great. I encourage that. But, you know, listen, there are some TFGs in Congress. Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of them. If you're talking about impeaching before the president even did anything, president-elect even did anything, where do we go from there? We go nowhere. And I'm going to mock you because you deserve all the mockery in the world. Okay. Okay, bitch, now we move on, yeah. We're going to make fun of Jim Comey. So James Comey is in the news. That's annoying on, on its own. I mean, <laughs> I could stop the, the story right here, and it would be like, oh, fuck that guy. But um, he said something that made some headlines. And, I mean, this is classic, like, Washington, D.C. brain here. Take a look. Do you think Joe Biden should pardon Trump before did Nixon? I don't know. He should, at least, he should consider it. Now, I don't know whether Donald Trump, he's not a genius, but he might figure out that if he accepts a pardon, that's an admission of guilt, uh, as the United States Supreme Court has said. So I don't know that he would accept a pardon, but as part of healing the country and getting us to a place where we can focus on things that are going to matter over the next four years, I think Joe Biden's going to have to at least think about that. Joe Biden should consider pardoning Donald Trump. He should think about that. Counterpoint. No, he shouldn't. They're not even going to go after him. Like, the federal government is not even going to go after him. You know, there are cases in New York against Trump's businesses. Those might go somewhere. But the feds aren't going to go after him. And the reason for that is they never go after anybody who's in that club. Now, granted, a lot of the club hates Trump, but he was president of the United States. There was zero accountability and zero justice when it came to the Bush administration, the war criminals, the torturers, the people who waged an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us and occupied the nation. There were zero people who were locked up for that. In fact, the only people who were locked up, it was the whistleblowers. 
some of the whistleblowers were locked up who exposed the wrongdoing. The people who did the wrongdoing, nothing. So if you didn't go after them, like, yes, the sad reality is there, there's no accountability and no justice for elites. There just isn't. I wish there was. There just isn't. I mean, we don't even need to go this far. I'm giving the extreme examples of the war criminals in the Bush administration. Um, a lot of those people are on TV now and viewed as resistance heroes like Bill Crystal or Colin Powell. But, I mean, even look at like what happened with the Wall Street meltdown, the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. These are people who, for short-term profit, tanked the global economy, and there were no consequences. In fact, it was the opposite. They made these decisions that bankrupted their companies and crashed the global economy. Then the government rushed in, bailed them out, and then these companies paid bonuses to the same people who destroyed their companies and crashed the world economy. Bonuses. So they treated it like they did a good job. So there's no accountability. There's no justice. There's no consequences. I wish there was. There's just not. And so now, here's the main point of this segment, guys. They're going to rehabilitate Trump. You want to know why? I know that because they already rehabilitated Bush. Bush has already been fully rehabilitated. Bush left office. I just looked at the numbers the other day because I wasn't sure exactly what it was. There was one poll that had him at 29%, or I'm sorry, 25%. And then there was another poll that had him at a 22% approval rating. 22%. That's what happened when Bush was leaving office. Now, we're going to get to the story on Trump's approval rating later. It's in Bush territory. But, yeah, why wouldn't they rehabilitate him? They already rehabilitated George W. Bush, who was just as bad, if not worse, than Trump. In different ways, admittedly. But they already rehabilitated Bush. Why wouldn't they rehabilitate Trump? And there's going to come a time. I don't know when the year's going to be. There's going to be like a president carrot top who declares martial law. And they're going to, people are going to yearn for the good old days when Trump only flirted with, you know, um, implementing martial law. They're going to rehabilitate Trump. Prepare yourself. I mean, if James Comey is already talking about, eh, maybe you pardon him for unity or whatever, they're going to rehabilitate him. Listen, the way it's supposed to work, justice is supposed to be blind. Nobody's supposed to be above the law. I mean, we should have prosecuted all the war criminals, all the torturers. We should have prosecuted all the people who participated in the financial meltdown and really made it so that Millions of people lost their homes. A lot of people should have went to jail. A lot of Wall Street criminals, a lot of gangsters, thugs, corrupt politicians. Nobody went to jail. And so now, because you didn't draw a line in the sand back then, and you arguably should have done it even earlier than that, what do you expect to happen? Like, this is what's going to happen. Of course. James Comey, Mr. Like, I'm the serious resistance man who cares about decorum and civility. All of a sudden, he's like, rule of law? Yeah, maybe ignore the rule of law and pardon this guy who obviously should not be pardoned. Now, by the way, let's get specific. What exactly are the things that Trump did that are beyond the pale? Well, where do I even begin? There's a million things he did. He increased the illegal drone war 432%. He continued bombing the eight different countries that the previous administration was bombing. He did... Um, an illegal assassination of a top Iranian commander, General Soleimani, who was on the ground fighting ISIS at the time. The list goes on and on. His first um, strike as president killed a little girl. 
A lot of people don't know that story. I'm one of the few people who've been talking about that story nonstop. Then, of course, you get into the corruption stuff, the violation of the emoluments clause. Um, I think it was impeachable that he gave a multi-billion dollar weapons deal to Saudi Arabia while he was taking money from them through his hotel, and they were committing a genocide with those weapons in Yemen. If that's not impeachable, I don't know what is. I mean, you have everything there. You have corruption. You have genocide. I mean, it's as bad as it gets. And then again, like we discussed beyond that, he's got regular business crimes that he's done, and that's what they're looking at in New York. The Attorney General of New York is looking at his business crimes. There's serious business crimes. Um, You know, tax fraud, for example. He loves to overvalue his assets when bragging about them and undervalue his assets when it comes time to pay taxes. Illegal write-offs he was taking and just funneling the money to Ivanka. There's a million things. But James Comey, Mr. Serious Resistance, man, ah, maybe you pardon him. Unity, unity, whatever, something. Is there nothing that's beyond the pale to these people? Listen, if you're part of the club, there is nothing that's beyond the pale. Eh, he meant well or, you know, whatever. He learned his lesson enough. He already lost the election. What are you going to do? There's enough punishment there. Consider pardoning him. What a vicious cycle. And then we have the nerve to go around to the rest of the world and lecture them. We do. We lecture them. We lecture the rest of the world about freedom and liberty and justice and democracy. And Sometimes we have to do regime change elsewhere because, God forbid, leaders of foreign countries are, like, breaking the law or something. Can't have that. The hypocrisy is immense and overwhelming and should be pretty clear to you, no, none of these people deserve a pardon. You should throw the book at them. Okay. Next, let's talk about Biden's day one agenda. So we just got some information on Biden's day one agenda, or actually maybe more specifically like week one agenda thereabouts. Take a look at this. This is from Politico. I believe this is from Politico. Joe Biden is planning to sign dozens of executive orders in his first days in office as he aims to roll back some of President Donald Trump's signature policies on immigration and climate change while taking early action to address the coronavirus crisis. After being sworn in on Wednesday, Biden will rescind the travel ban on several majority Muslim countries, rejoin the Paris Climate Accords, extend limits on student loan payments and evictions instituted during the pandemic, and issue a mask mandate on federal properties and for interstate travel. Incoming White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain outlined the flurry of activity for Biden's first 10 days in office in a memo to senior staff on Saturday. On Biden's second day in office, he will sign executive actions focused on addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, including ways to help schools and businesses reopen safely, expanding testing, protect workers, and establish clear public health standards. The next day, Biden will direct his cabinet to work on delivering economic relief to families most affected by the crisis. In subsequent days, Biden will expand Buy America provisions, take action to advance equity and support communities of color, begin to reform the criminal justice system, expand access to health care, and work towards reuniting families separated at the border. Klain did not specify what these actions would entail, but the memo follows Biden's 
introduction this week of his legislative agenda, which includes a $1.9 trillion relief bill. All right, so let's talk about that first, the $1.9 trillion relief bill. There's a lot of good stuff in that relief bill, without a doubt. It has to be said because it's true. Um, Still, the approach that they're taking is upsetting me for a number of reasons. The most important one is probably that instead of doing $2,000 checks now, they're saying we're going to do $1,400 more to make it a total of $2,000 because you already got $600. Okay. There's debate online as to, hey, what did they mean all along? Is this what they meant all along? Maybe you shouldn't bitch because maybe they meant $2,000 total all along. Listen, I would argue no because after they already got the $600 through, Biden the next day went to Georgia and did a rally where he said, we're going to get you $2,000 checks. He's saying, I'm going to get you $2,000 checks after they already passed the 600. So I think that really the number should be the total of 2,600. But listen, I digress. It is what it is. Um, they're going to go for $2,000 total. It's Weasley. It's Weasley. Even if you buy into their argument, it's still, I think, Weasley. They should just do the $2,000 checks, especially because one of the main reasons they won. But the reason beyond that that this annoys me is because they're not doing a standalone bill. Whether it's a $2,000 standalone bill or a 1400 standalone bill, they should be doing a standalone bill and passing it through budget reconciliation because they said this is effectively what they would be doing. Instead, they packaged it together with $1.9 trillion. And then Biden turns around and says, we're going to try to get to the 60 votes and make it bipartisan. But you're not going to be able to do that. So why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And then if they slap it down, are are the Democrats going to turn around and say, we're not even going to try to do this through budget reconciliation now? And then you get nothing. You get no more relief. If that's what ends up happening, that is dirty, man. Because there was a number of sleight of hand tricks there that were gross that effectively would leave us with nothing. But again, I'll reserve judgment until I see what happens, because you have to wait until you see what happens to be fair about it. Um, There's a chance that it's not going to be bipartisan. And then what happens is Biden and the Democrats go, okay, we'll just do it through reconciliation. And then they get their $1.9 trillion package through anyway, in which case, okay, fair enough, credit where credit is due. But we have to see that, right? I think the easiest thing to do would have been $2,000 checks, do it through reconciliation. It would have passed with well over 51 votes. You would have got like 55 or 56. And then you're the, you know, the hero to the country. Everybody in the country is like, wow, Biden's doing a great job. He just sent me a $2,000 check as his first act in office. But it looks like he's not going to do that. So anyway, now let's go beyond the conversation about the $1.9 trillion relief bill. What did I tell you guys? I told you guys that the first day or the first week Biden is in office will without a doubt be his most productive time in office because he's going to get in there. Even if you have a limited view on what you can do through executive orders, he's going to do all the things that he thinks he can do through executive orders up front right away. And that's what they're telling us here. That's what they're laying out for us here. And there's a number of things that I think are wonderful. The Buy America provisions I think are wonderful. Um, Getting back in the Paris Climate Agreement, wonderful. So make no mistake about it, in Biden's first day or first week in office, he's going to have a better presidency than Trump had for his four years in office, because ideologically, a lot of the things he's doing, I agree with. So on that front, credit where credit is due, and you know, I want to see the, the actual list of all the executive orders he's going to sign, and we'll go through it one by one, and I'll tell you what I like and what I don't like, and you can determine what you like and what you don't like. But yeah, I mean, that's positive. You know, this news absolutely is positive. But now let's take it one step further, because I think this is incredibly important. So after Biden's first day or his first week in office, you know, that's when it starts to get, oh, God, what's going on here? I think he's going to fall back into his standard Joe Biden corporate 
patterns. You know, he's a, he's a neoliberal corporatist. It's what he is. He's big on bipartisanship and all that stuff. And he's effectively a moderate Republican. Now, would I love to see him not do that and become the new FDR? Pfft, are you kidding me? I'd love it. Prove me wrong, Joseph. Prove me wrong. Become the new FDR. Don't go back to your old moderate Republican ways. But here's what should happen after we get past, you know, Biden's like honeymoon period where he does some things that are decent. First day, first week, whatever it is. Maybe a few months into the administration when it looks like Biden now is not doing the things that we want him to do anymore. And maybe he's reaching across the aisle to get some sort of grand bargain on Social Security and Medicare with Mitch McConnell. Um, I think that the Congressional Progressive Caucus, factions of it, elements of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, because a lot of them are just total frauds in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. The Justice Democrats are not. I think that they're allies who agree with us 98% of the time on policy, and they're just, they don't have the proper strategy most of the time. And so they're relatively ineffectual, even though they mean well and they have the right ideas. I think that what you should do is get a faction of like a dozen of the Justice Democrats, and maybe some others who are part of the Congressional Progressive Caucus who want to do the right thing, okay? You need to have discipline with this group. You need to understand that you're more powerful as a group than any of you are individually. So you need to have that discipline where everybody's committed to this and they mean it. And what you do is you say, Joe Biden, I'm going to block every single piece of legislation you want to pass until you sign these five executive orders that, that we support and that the American people support. And then you could list them off. It could be, you know, legalizing marijuana. So forcing him to actually do the right thing on some of this. And, and by the way, what I'm saying is the executive orders need to be things that you can do through executive orders. There's no debate as to whether or not you can legalize marijuana through executive orders. It's easy. You just take it off the controlled substances list. That's directly in the wheelhouse of the executive branch of the government. They could do that like that. Any president can legalize marijuana in an instant. So you hold every bill hostage and you say, here's what you're going to do. You're going to legalize marijuana and you go down the list. You're going to eliminate student loan debt. And by the way, I highly recommend David Dayen has, I think it's called the, is it called the day one, day one agenda, something like that. David Dayen for the American prospect wrote a bunch of articles about the power Biden or any president has through executive orders through the white house alone. It's wonderful articles because it's, it's very educational. And it's like, hey, here are the things he actually can do, and there are legal arguments for this. Another one is expanding health care to all Americans because of COVID-19, because it's a pandemic and it's a crisis. And so you have the authority already under Obamacare to expand health care to everybody. Now, Biden already says, hey, I'm not going to do that. I don't believe in Medicare for all. You're not going to move him on that overall. I wish we could, but I don't think we are. But can you move him on all bills associated with COVID-19 are going to be free. Any hospital stay anybody has with COVID-19, any treatment anybody gets, COVID-19 related, all the vaccines, everything's totally free when it comes to COVID-19. I think you can move them on that. So that should be another one of the executive orders. Expand, expand emergency health care protections to all Americans in regards to the pandemic. So any, anyway, I think you guys get the gist of it. This is the shit that the Tea Party used to do. Okay, they would band together and they would hold John Boehner accountable to their ideology. Now, their ideology happened to suck balls, but they had an ideology and they fought for it. They played hardball even with their own leadership. We don't see that on the left. 
I wish we did. We don't see it. I think they're wrong for not playing hardball with Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Democratic leadership. So it's time to play hardball with them. Okay? I'm not the kind of person who's going to smear intentions when I don't think the intentions are bad. You know how I know the intentions aren't bad? None of the Justice Democrats take big money, take billionaire money, take corporate money. They all raised all their money through small dollar donations, so they're not corrupt. So why would I call them corrupt? That makes no sense. That's counterproductive. They're just going to get defensive and view me as an enemy if I do that. So what they are is an ally who is lacking leadership qualities. They're lacking leadership. They don't know what they're doing. And so I want to help them to come up with a plan to show them this is what you do if you really want to enact change. And this is a way you can really enact change. Now, why do I think they're not going to do it? Why do I think they're going to hesitate to do it? Because if you do this, the media is going to despise you. They're going to hate you. They're going to smear you relentlessly. They're going to even say, like, you're doing the bidding of the Republicans by doing this, which is nonsense, of course. The Republicans don't agree with any of these good policy ideas that we're laying out here. But that's what's going to happen. So one of the main things you need, and this is a you know, fundamental building block of leadership, you need to be willing to take the punches. And whatever the consequences are, they are. But you're leading and you're fighting for the American people and you're playing hardball for the American people. I just don't think any of the people who agree with me on policy, I don't think they have the cojones to, to do what they need to do. And that's upsetting. That is upsetting. And that's perhaps my fault for not understanding how important leadership is. You know, I naively thought just get people in Congress who agree with me and then, you know, magically we'll end up getting some of the policies that we like. No, because you need to have the right policy ideas, but also the right theory of change. And the right theory of change is hostile takeover of the system. And I don't see them doing a hostile takeover. I see them doing, hey, if I get in close enough with leadership, then maybe every now and then they'll throw me a bone and do some of the policies I like. And I can enact more change in the long run if I'm not actively antagonistic towards leadership. It's a theory. I think it happens to be a wrong theory because this is what the left has done for decades and we don't have much to show for it. So anyway, this is what they should do. This is what they should do. We have, we have a block of a dozen justice Democrats, the left flank of the Democratic Party, the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, to steal an old phrase. Now you're going to listen to us. I'll block every piece of your agenda from now until the end of your time in office. You're not, you're not going to get anything through. You're not going to be able to name a bridge. I'll block everything unless you do these five executive orders. And then listen, when the time comes to actually negotiate when they're willing to come to the table, and they will be, and they will be, hardball works, well, then we have the conversation, and perhaps only B- Biden only does two of them. Perhaps Biden says, I'll legalize marijuana and I'll eliminate student loan debt, but that's it. I'll take that deal. So the other three of the ideas that were on the table, maybe he says, I can't do those, I'm sorry. We'll make a deal. But the deal will be, without a doubt, a deal that favors the American people because this is how you win, this is how you fight, this is how you make them do your bidding. But you need to be willing to take the fire from everybody. They're going to hate you. The media is going to hate you. The establishment is going to hate you, but the people are going to love you. And also, you need to be disciplined. And I don't see this kind of message discipline from the left at all, ever, ever. 
so easy to divide and conquer the left. It's so easy to – all it takes is one of, one of the 12 being scared and saying, I'm caving, and then the whole thing falls apart. And so, again, this is why you need backbone, you need spine, you need leadership. And um, it's just not something that I see. I wish they'll get it, but, you know, I mean, Nina Turner's got to basically ride in to save the day, I think. I think she's our, our best hope. But anyway, there you have it. Credit where credit is due. A lot of these things Biden's talking about in his first day and his first week, they're positive. And now what I'm talking about is after he's done doing his positive stuff, and there will come a day where it's not very positive anymore, that's when you go to hold him accountable. And that's when you vote as a block. And that's when you have message discipline. And that's when you force your will and the will of the American people onto these corrupt politicians. Okay. Um, next. Oh, shit, I gotta change the color behind me. No big deal or anything, but I'm gonna brag because I'm right about something yet again. So here, <laughs> here is a new poll that just came out on President Trump and his approval rating. Um, This is from Pew. Trump's job approval dropped sharply almost entirely among Republicans. Look at that. 68% of the country disapproves of of Trump's job in office. And look at that approval rating. What do we have here? A new low, and the low is 29%. Now, we just did the story recently. He hit a new low in other polls as well. There was a Quinnipiac poll, and there was some other poll. I'm blanking on which it was. But he was uh, 34% and 33%, respectively. Now, his previous low was 35%. And so he dropped underneath his lowest ever in the other polls. Now we have a real – not only is this his lowest ever for Pew, this is his lowest ever, I believe, for any polling agency. Now, what did I tell you guys the day after the attempted insurrection, the diet coup, as I call it? What did I tell you guys? I told you guys his approval rating was going to plummet. And I said 35% or less, but I even think 30% or less. And what do we have here? 30% or less. And remember, at the time, his approval rating was 42%, was the one that I saw just before the Capitol Hill attempted coup, the diet coup. 29% is where he's at now. So, understand something. This is officially George W. Bush territory. Because George W. Bush, I just went back and looked at the numbers the other day. Because I was, you know, I've been mentioning this tangentially on air, but I wanted to get the actual numbers. Um, The lowest George W. Bush ever had in one poll, I believe it was a CBS poll, was 22% when he was leaving office. 22%. That's even lower than Trump. But there were others. There was one 25 and another one that was 29. So, but bottom line is, listen, when you're in the 20s and you're president, usually the president is, usually the president doesn't dip into the 20s. They don't. Most presidents, you know, Obama's lowest was like 40, which that's almost like Trump's highs. Um, 
And it was same with, uh, with Bill Clinton. His lowest was around 40, I think 38 or something like that. But Trump is now in the area of McConnell and Pelosi. McConnell's 21%, Pelosi's 28%, Trump is now 29%. So he's in George W. Bush territory for when George W. Bush was leaving office. And remember, when W. was leaving office, we had two wars that we were throwing money at and civilians were dying like crazy and our soldiers were dying. And we had the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession where the economy was effectively imploding. He was in the 20s. Now Donald Trump is in the 20s. Guys, all Trump had to do, and he would have been fine, is just not egg on an insurrection. Like, and what I mean by that is, for after Trump's time in office, listen, Trump wants to be like Hillary Clinton. He wants to be beloved by other elites. And Hillary's beloved by elites. Trump wanted that. And so he was hoping that after his presidency, you know, he gets paid by these people. He gets patted on the head by these people. But now, because of this diet coup, all the money and interests are running from Republicans at 1,000 miles an hour. The corporations are abandoning Republicans at 1,000 miles an hour. Trump's, for Trump's own businesses, they're in trouble because Deutsche Bank said, we're done working with them. He's $300 million in debt to Deutsche Bank, man. So he's in trouble. He's in trouble. His approval rating is the lowest it's ever been as he's leaving office. And now the establishment is completely abandoning him, even though he gave the establishment exactly what they want in terms of deregulation and tax cuts for the wealthy. This is super sad, super sad. But in some ways, it's like the perfect ending to the Trump era. It is because he was one of the most, I believe he was, whether Hillary won or Trump won in 2016, they were going to be the most unpopular person to ever win. And so Trump won. He was the most unpopular person. He had an approval rating at the time of like 42% when he won. And then now on his way out, it was going to be 42%. And then after this, drop now plummeted all the way to 29%. He's as unpopular or roughly as unpopular as George W. Bush when George W. Bush was leaving the White House. It's amazing how much of a scam the Trump era was, right? It really was in every imaginable way. Even like the pseudo-populist economic stuff he said on the campaign trail about, you know, we're going to stop the outsourcing, we're going to protect your jobs. He didn't. There's been net outsourcing of jobs his entire time in office. In his first year or two, there was about 100,000 jobs that left. I mean, you could go issue for issue and you realize that this guy just governed as George W. Bush, and now he's got roughly George W. Bush's approval rating. So there definitely is a sense of justice when you look at these numbers, but yet again, we called it. And, and understand something. The main reason why this happened, the main reason is what I said in the previous segment on this, which is the other time where he had a big drop in his approval rating was when he threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act and deploy U.S. soldiers on U.S. streets, and he tear-gassed peaceful protesters and did a photo op with a Bible in front of a church. So, and the reason why he tanked is because people thought, okay, this is getting out of hand. This is no longer cute reality show stuff with the reality show president, with the reality star president. This is like, you're going to deploy the U.S. military on our streets? No, that affects us directly. And 
Suburban America, which had previously been okay with Trump, tolerated Trump, many supported Trump, suburban America was gone. Because they thought, I'm in favor of law and order, and Donald Trump is violating law and order. He's the chaotic agent. He's the one who's bringing about mayhem. I'm not okay with that. I want law and order. I want calm. And by the way, who's Trump going to be replaced with? A guy who's barely alive, Joe Biden. Joe Biden's not going to cause any trouble domestically in terms of some shit like that, some menacing authoritarian crackdown. He's just going to eat his Cheerios and, and, and babble a little bit about the good old days. So people felt like, well, that guy's more calm. That guy's more stable. And Trump is unstable, not at all calm. He's threatening law and order. And so that's exactly what we saw with this diet coup as well, with him out there egging him on, talking out of both sides of his mouth. Total chaos happened. And he can't unequivocally denounce something like that, you know. He doesn't have it in him. He's got to speak out of both sides of his mouth. So he's a chaos agent. He brings disorder to the country. And that's, you know, he totally lost suburban America. And now the only, the 29% that's left is his most hardcore ardent supporters. And they're probably going nowhere anyway. But, you know, everybody who was a little bit over, everybody who over time had lost a little bit of faith in Trump, those people, gone. I told you, I have some people in my own family, anecdotally, who they, um, they were Trump supporters. And then the thing that finally they were like, All right, this is crazy, is when he lost. And then he wasn't just like blowing off steam for the next day or two where he was saying like, fraudulent election, re-election. He kept going with it. Even when more and more evidence rolled in that they were wrong and Biden actually did win and the courts verified it and there's no evidence to believe any of the things he's saying. There came a point where even my family members who were Trump supporters were like, you lost. Fucking take it. Take it like a man. Trump refused. I think that a lot of people that did turn off, because as much as they may have liked Trump, they did think there are higher ideals here at play, like the peaceful transition of power and what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. And when Trump was willing to piss all over that because he's got authoritarian instincts, they were like, oh, oh, that's not good. I don't like that. Well, here we are. 29% approval rating. Definitely earned. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Fox News accidentally made Bernie sound awesome. So we're going to talk about that and much, much more. Stay right there, everybody.
Son of a bitch. All right. I'm back, everybody. I'm back. And I still got a lot to talk about. Okay. Where were we, y'all? Oh, um, Trump's approval rating. Okay. Next. One of my favorite themes of Fox Clips is when they accidentally make the left sound awesome. So that's pretty much exactly what happened here. This is Stuart Varney on Fox Business Network and his co-host, I guess, or Fox contributor, some other Fox contributor whose name I don't know here. Um, they are fear-mongering about ideas that are, frankly, awesome. So credit, thanks to Case Study QB for grabbing this clip. Let's take a look at uh, what they have to say about Bernie. Hey, Sanders is set to play a major role in helping to shape Biden's economic agenda or get it through Congress. Ashley, what's Bernie's plan? Well, let's put it this way, Sue, he's already salivating at that possibility as a lead member of the Senate Budget Committee. Sanders says he intends to use budget reconciliation measures to fast-track uh, tax and budget-related matters that he says will help working families, and all he needs, of course, in that scenario would be a simple majority. Now, it would require unanimous support from Democrats, as the Senate is split 50-50, uh, President-elect Biden says he's going to work closely with Sanders on their shared economic agenda. And, of course, that includes a $15 federal minimum wage and strong support for labor unions. Stu? Yeah, Ash, he wants to get rid of the, um, the filibuster rule so he can raise taxes yep. with just 51 votes. That's yes. what he wants. Here's why that clip is amazing. So... The other host, not Stuart Varney, the other guy is like, $15 minimum wage and labor unions. And he's trying to present it as like, isn't that terrible? Higher minimum wage and labor unions to make the situation better for workers and get them more benefits and more vacation time and stuff. Gross. Disgusting. Now, Stuart Varney is smart enough to understand that that isn't going to land how this guy wants it to land. See, that guy is so brainwashed that he thinks if I just bring up $15 minimum wage and labor unions that everybody in unison is like, disgusting. But no. The $15 minimum wage, for example, a higher minimum wage, pulls it like 80% or something like that. It's insanely high. So even a lot of Fox News viewers and Fox Business viewers would look at that and be like, is that supposed to be bad? Are these things supposed to be bad? Because I certainly don't think that that's obvious that these things are bad. So Stewart tries to save it at the end. And what does he say? Oh, what Bernie wants to do is um, fast track through reconciliation tax increases. That's what he wants. He wants to raise taxes. That's what he wants to do. Now, by the way, is that like one of the first things on, on, on the Bernie agenda or the Democratic agenda? Of course not. Of course that's not one of the first things on the agenda. But furthermore, even if they do that, what they mean is raise taxes on people like Stuart Varney, raise taxes on corporations, 
raise, ta- raise the capital gains rate, which is when your money makes money through investment, through investments, uh, raise the top marginal tax rate. Like if they were going to go that path, they wouldn't be raising taxes on average Joe and average Jane. They just wouldn't be doing it. That's not their ideology. That's not what they believe. That's not what their tax plan. They have proposed tax plans, and that's not what those tax plans show. Those tax plans are progressive tax plans, which means they raise taxes more on the wealthy, and they either leave them the same or, in some cases, reduce it for people at the bottom or in the middle. But again, Stewart's propaganda is slightly more sophisticated than the other numbnuts here, because at least Stewart understands that when you say $15 minimum wage and, and labor unions, that's not going to get the visceral sort of you know, reaction from the audience that this guy thinks it does. But Stewart does know, hey, to my audience, to the Fox audience, if I say the Democrats wants to, want, want to raise taxes, that that will be perceived by the Fox audience as Bernie Sanders wants to raise my taxes, wants to raise the average Joe and the average James taxes, which is not true, but it's more sophisticated propaganda because he's, he's, he's pressing a button in the brain that's going to give them the Pavlovian response that they're looking for. But oh, Democrats bad. Bernie bad. Bernie's a socialist. Socialism bad. And it's all, again, it's all based on nonsense because that's not one of the first things on their agenda to raise taxes. But even if it was, they would mean for the wealthy in corporations, which is a good thing, which again, by the way, according to the numbers, those ideas are very popular. Raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy, it's very popular. So again, I mean, this is how many times is Fox News going to do this and Fox Business going to do this? and shoot themselves in the ball sack. They try to, like, fearmonger about the left, and it's like, they want you to have a dignified life and more paid vacation time and to be with your loving family together? Disgusting. I think you should be forced to work in a factory and make next to no money and not have any free time. That's my idea. Oh, shit. Am I... Is my propaganda not convincing at the moment? Is it? Is it not... Yeah, it's not convincing. It's not working. You got to cloak it. You got like Stewart tried to save it. Uh, Bernie wants to raise taxes, and the implication is on you. He doesn't, but that's the implication. He's trying to save it with the propaganda, but the other guy was just like, higher wages, gross. <laughs> They're so stupid. And again, just another pro tip here. Hey Fox, I know what they're going for. They're going for like, oh, the accents sound sophisticated, and that's why we put these guys out there. But when they say stuff like this, the accent no longer sounds sophisticated. It sounds incredibly pompous, because that's what they are. Okay. Next. Okay, we're going we're gonna to talk about the MyPillow guy who should be creeping you the fuck out. Here we go. So there's a guy, I think his name is Mike Lindell, or Mike Liddell or Lindell, something like that. He's... Um, I guess he's the owner, the creator of my pillow, and he is a hardcore right winger. I mean, 
he's as right wing as it gets. It, this is a guy who's like up till 4 a.m. looking at QAnon shit and thinking it's like 100% factual. Guy's got issues, okay? So um, he's been all in on the Trump train. When others abandon Trump, he's right there cheering on his daddy. Um, I think there was a scary thing I read the other day that as Trump, you know, felt more and more isolated, he kept turning to only people who would tell him what he wants to hear in the wake of losing to Biden. And the only two people left, the MyPillow guy and Rudy Giuliani, that's it. Everybody else, I'm talking every, Mick Mulvaney, these guys are not good guys and they're not truth tellers, right? Like Mick Mulvaney, um, Larry Kudlow, the CNBC goon who's been wrong about everything when it comes to economics, even guys like Larry Kudlow were like, uh, Mr. President, you lost. And Trump, no, wrong, this fraudulent election, and did you see the ballot dumps and things? It's unbelievable what we're seeing here, totally rigged, totally unfair. But at one by one, everybody was like, I tried to get through to him, I couldn't get through to him. So the only people left, the my pillow guy and Rudy Giuliani. Now, that's scary enough as is, but wait until you see the kind of stuff this guy is saying. Watch this. From November 4th on, every day I have spent looking into the election fraud, I've worked with Sidney Powell, General Flynn, all the guys with these machines, these experts, and I can tell you 100% Donald Trump is going to be your president for four more years. I have, I have never, ever, ever said anything less than, than 100%. And just today, there was so much this morning. I was on the phone with General Flynn, and just even more evidence came out. These are going to be bonus evidence just to put more people in prison. You know, we were, and we, and right now I'm telling everyone in this country, you have to 100% believe me when I tell you Donald Trump was picked for eight years by God, not four. And I want everybody to just keep the faith. I've got a, God's granted me this big platform, and I just know with everything that's going to happen, you're going to see miracles happen in the next uh, couple of days. How do you even respond to this guy? How do you even get through to this guy? This is the kind of guy that Trump previously would have called crazy because there were stories about how Mike Pence's religiosity got under Trump's skin and he would like poke fun at him and be like, how about this guy? He wants to stone all the gays to death, huh? Ridiculous. So, but this is the kind of guy like uber religious, creepy that Trump would have made fun of previously. But now since he's one of the only guys telling him what he wants to hear all of a sudden, you know, he's now in his inner circle. And you heard the stuff he said, man, scare you, when he says 100% Trump is going to be your president for four more years. 100%. Homeboy didn't say 99. Homeboy didn't say 98. He said 100%. And this is a guy who is now close to Trump and whispering in his ear 24-7. In fact, this guy had a meeting with Trump last week, and there was a sheet of paper when um, – the MyPillow guy was walking out of the meeting. Some media outlet was able to get some pictures. It said on the sheet of paper, paper, martial law. 
He's trying to convince Trump to implement martial law to stay in office. Terrifying. I mean, listen, I get it. I get it. These guys are buffoons. These guys are incompetent. You know, Trump's, Trump couldn't organize or strategize or create a skillful plan to effectively do a coup. Like, I get it. I get it. But the fact that the intention is so clear, you know what I mean? That is disturbing. Without a doubt, that's disturbing. And this guy's bringing up a who's who of the crazy people, General Flynn. And he said Trump was picked for eight years by God. Trump was picked for eight years by God. I mean, it's the same point I always make whenever religiosity is injected into the conversation regarding Trump, which is, if that's the judgment of your God, perhaps your God is not omnipotent. You know what I mean? Like, if of all the people who can be president of the United States of America, the one God chose was Donald Trump, that's not a God worthy of worship. That's a flawed motherfucker right there now, isn't it? That's the guy you pick? The grab him by the pussy guy? The guy who was a businessman and went bankrupt like six or seven times? His whole veneer, his whole facade was like, gotta vote for me, because I'm like the awesome, competent businessman. Well, then why'd you go bankrupt like six times? A lot of, a lot of people, you know, you guys know this, but a lot of people don't know this. He... Trump inherited like $400 million from his dad. If I give you $400 million, yeah, you could create the image that you're an awesome businessman as well, but you don't have to do Dickie McGee's act. You got $400 million. Buy some nice suits. Go out there and pretend like, you, you know, who, me, bro? I'm just the best businessman ever. No big deal or anything. Like, it's all a mirage. It's all a mirage. The only things that he did that were profitable was The Apprentice and slapping his name. People would pay him for the rights to put his name on their buildings. That's it. Everything else was a bust. Trump vodka, Trump steaks, Trump the board game, you name it. I don't even know how I got to this part of the conversation where I'm talking about business. Oh, that's right, the God thing. The idea that God picked this guy. Honestly, he's a con artist. I would have said he's a mediocre con artist. Since he actually was able to get to the White House, I now think he's arguably the greatest con artist of all time, that he was able to get that far. Um, But this is who God likes. This is who God prefers. Another question I have, I always bring this one up, too, because it, it really fascinates me. How It's so America-centric, right? Like, does God only pick the leader of America, or is he also like, well, what's on the schedule today? What's on the agenda? I got to pick the president for Cameroon. I got to pick the German chancellor, the president for Cameroon. I got to see what's going on in New Zealand. Maybe they need somebody new. What's happening in Madagascar? We got Madagascar's on the agenda today. Is everything okay there? I got to pick the leader for Madagascar. Or is it only like America? You know, it's just, imagine being an adult and thinking, not only that God exists and is real, but it's also like God is micromanaging what's happening on earth and like picking the leader of the United States of America. By the way, this shows you that all other ideas and principles are out the window, you know, because I'm sure the my pillow guy would tell you to your face, oh, I believe in America, of course. I believe in our constitutional republic and our representative democracy. We have the best system of government, and it's wonderful. But then he'd be, he's willing to throw all of that out. If Trump actually did a coup, 
and was like, I'm now doing an authoritarian takeover of the country and staying in power, he'd be like, awesome. So any, any commitment to ideals, values, principles, it's just gone. It's just gone. And these guys are scary. These guys are scary. He believes in nothing except Donald Trump and what he thinks his God is whispering in his ear. That's it. And imagine having some sort of religious devotion to Donald Trump after looking at what Trump has done for four years. What has he done? He's done more tax cuts for the rich. He's done more deregulation. He's continued the wars. He gets in Twitter arguments like he's in high school. Like, what, what has he done? Continued the culture of corruption. He's not draining the swamp. He is the swamp. He's bathing in the swamp. And this is the kind of devotion that a guy like the Pillow guy has for him. It's just, it's hard to wrap your mind around, man. But beware. Trump's closest allies are now going around saying 100% Trump is going to be your president for four more years. And by the way, I think this was from early January, like January 4th or 5th, something like that is when he gave this speech. So, but he's been doing it more. There was another video that was released of him on Parler on his private jet going to see Trump where he's basically saying the same thing, 100% Trump's going to be your president. The most fringe far-right characters took over the country. That's cause for concern. Okay. Next. There's a new poll from CBS and YouGov that I want to share with you. I think these numbers are cause for concern. So the question here is, as you see it, the biggest threat to the American way of life today comes from, here are the options, other people in America and domestic enemies, 54%. Foreign countries and military threats overseas, 8%. The natural world, like water, viruses, and natural disasters, 17%. And economic forces such as money, trade, and business, 20%. So there's an answer there that's correct, that's real, that I would argue is verifiable, provable, demonstrable. And the overwhelming majority did not pick the right answer. Okay? That is cause for concern. So first and foremost, 54% of the country think that the biggest threat to America is from other Americans. I mean, this is exactly what Matt Taibbi's thesis is in Hate, Inc. That, and he you know, talks about it through the perspective of cable news, that people have been whipped up into a frenzy. The MSNBC viewers who are hardcore partisan Democrats think the partisan Republicans are the enemy of America and the problem in the country. And if you watch Fox News or One American News Network or Newsmax, you think Democrats are the problem in America and they're destroying the country. And, I mean, the partisan divide is now so strong that people think that's a bigger problem than, like, climate change or COVID-19. Because, again, one of the options was natural world, weather, viruses, natural disasters. But most importantly, people are overwhelmingly picking that over economic forces such as money, trade, and business. Guys, it, it all comes back to that. All of the problem, the root of all of the problems, it comes back to that. 
it comes back to the fact that there's a small number of people at the top of the country who really run everything. We can call them economic elites. And the system is rigged. The rules are rigged in their favor. And as a result of that, every, you know, incredibly large numbers of people live in poverty and degradation with no hope, no prospects for a good future, no way out. And that really is the root cause of all the problems. You name a problem, and we could trace it back to that. Even something like climate change. We could have acted on climate change a long time ago if it wasn't for the fact that ExxonMobil and Chevron and big oil and the fossil fuel industry bought the government and owned the government. So again, small number of people at the top, a ruling elite, were the core of the problem there. You name the issue, I will tell you. Who's to blame? You know, you want to talk about the drug war, for example. Well, the alcohol companies, the tobacco companies, big pharma, they can lose a lot if we legalize, tax, and regulate recreational marijuana and we stop locking people up for it. You can even go as far as to say um, the way the status quo works, where certain people's jobs are tied to keeping people locked up, for personal freedom choices, they're also to blame. But again, it's an elite at the top of society that are making decisions that benefit themselves and screw over everybody else. And the system is rigged. The system is not fair. That's the heart and soul of every problem in this country. And instead of acknowledging that, instead of understanding it's the haves and the have-nots, the elite's versus the people. It's capital. It's the, it's the 1% versus the 99%. Instead of understanding that, it's the owner class versus the workers. Instead of understanding that, now the majority of Americans say, no, the bigger divide is the partisan divide. And that gets into a broader conversation as well, because a lot of that stuff is through the lens of the culture war. So what we have here is a situation where the culture war is overriding the class war, which is exactly what the elites want. They would rather have you blaming other Americans who are not the cause of your problems. They would rather have you blaming those people as being the cause of your problems so that they can keep running out the back door with all the money and all the power and all the control. It's a lot harder to be angry at your neighbor when you make a good wage have health care, have education, have paid vacation time by law, have a genuinely fulfilled, fruitful, happy, joyful life. It's a lot harder to be mad at your neighbor because they don't agree with you on abortion or whatever the issue may be. It's a lot harder. It's amazing how well the tricks of the elites have worked. Separate us when it comes to the culture war. Separate us when it comes to partisan divides, separate us when it comes to race issues, all these divisions, divisions, division, and then we fight amongst each other, we blame each other, meanwhile, they're getting exactly what they want, total control of the system. They have all the power, all the money, they've rigged the system against everybody, not giving anybody a shot, and the numbers show it worked. Again, only 20% of the country is correct, 
only 20% of the country is correct, which means 80% of the country is wrong in terms of the biggest threat to America. It's the corporations. It's the people at the top of the corporations. It's the, it's the moneyed interests. It's the elites. Without a doubt, I think it's provable. It's objective that that is the biggest threat to America. But instead, seemingly blaming each other, other Americans for it. That's terrifying, man. That really is. The only good piece of good news, I would say, the only piece of good news, I would say, is that only 8% of the country thinks foreign countries and military threats from overseas are the biggest problem. So that means even all the propaganda, Cold War propaganda, whatever it might be, uh, oh, fear Iran, fear this, fear that, only 8% of the country thinks, yeah, the biggest threat is from some other, you know, some sort of threat of a military strike against us or whatever. That's positive. That's positive, because that means, and that shows, like, polls also show Americans are generally anti-war. They want to get out of the wars. That's good. That's good. But it's not good that we've sort of completely fallen for the culture war. And the culture war is overriding the class war. And that has negative consequences, and it's time to address this and fix it. Okay. Next. Trump does not have that much long longer in office. And uh, does that sentence, that sentence sounded clunky as fuck, didn't it? Trump does not have that much longer in office. Eh, I guess that makes sense. Um, so... Time's running out. Time's running out to pardon Assange or pardon Snowden or do anything remotely good. Um, But here we are. Now, an article came out last night, a few nights ago. It said um, there's a hundred more pardons and commutations he's considering that he'll probably do. (laughs) Funny enough, the article said some famous rappers are on it. (laughs) Interesting. I wonder who it is. but some of them are also very political in nature and like returning favors for big Republican donors. Not surprised by that, even though it's incredibly corrupt and gross. The previous round of pardons had war criminals in it, the Blackwater war criminals who murdered civilians and were unapologetic. Um, Again, we're running out of time to do the most important thing that he can do, which is pardon Snowden and Assange and reality winner you could throw in there as well. Is he going to do it? I hope so. All I can say is I hope so. But look at this new development. Exclusive. Mr. Trump always got a kick out of me. Pamela Anderson is now appealing to the outgoing president for a face-to-face meeting to secure a last-minute pardon for her friend Julian Assange, who faces 175 years behind bars. Pamela Anderson wants to meet President Trump in hopes he will grant a presidential pardon to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. I want him to be free, said Anderson in an exclusive interview with the DailyMail.com. The former Baywatch star knows that after Biden's inauguration, the chances of securing Assange's freedom on espionage charges could slip away. She said, I have met Mr. Trump a few times on the Playboy circuit. I was invited to his birthday. He has always got a kick out of me. Pamela and and Assange met in 2014 at the Ecuadorian embassy in London after being introduced by fashion designer Vivian Westwood. They would speak regularly on the phone and the visits became regular. Rumors quickly swirled that they were romantically involved and Anderson has done little to quash them. Okay, so don't care about 
whether or not they're in a relationship. Don't give a shit. Uh, what I do care about is that she's right on this. She's right. Uh, Julian Assange deserves a pardon. And if it, I mean, listen, the reason why there's some cause for hope is that, do you remember what worked to get Alice Johnson pardoned? You remember? Kim Kardashian asked Trump for a meeting in the White House, and Trump said yes. You want to know why? Because Trump respects celebrity. He's been obsessed his whole life with celebrity, being a celebrity, knowing celebrities. It's one of the main things he cares about. So Kim Kardashian asked for a meeting. He gave her a meeting, and she made the case. And he was like, you know what? I think that makes sense. I'm going to pardon her. And so one of the best things he did, pardoning Alice Johnson, was done because Kim Kardashian had the initiative to reach out to Trump to try to get a meeting, and it worked. So there's a track record of stuff like this working. And now you have Pamela Anderson reaching out to Trump saying, can I have a meeting? And she's going to try to get Julian Assange pardoned. Trump has a soft spot for celebrity, famous, pretty women. And so I hope she makes the case effectively, and I hope he agrees, because as we've discussed previously, the reason why they so relentlessly and viciously and fiercely go after Julian Assange is because he exposed U.S. war crimes. That's why they go after him. Chelsea Manning gave him the information, gave him the video of U.S. soldiers killing journalists in Iraq. And then what happened is they did a double tap. They circled around. And then when the first responders came, the ambulance and everything, they attacked the first responders as well. These are war crimes. These are war crimes. Killing journalists, killing first responders, medical personnel. These are war crimes. So Chelsea Manning has a conscience and said, this is not, you could call this top secret or whatever, but you know what? This shouldn't be top secret because this is happening The U.S. military is doing it with our money, our tax dollars, and in our name. I can't sleep with that on my conscience. So Chelsea Manning brought it to Julian Assange. Julian Assange released it to the world. It became a big story about how we're committing war crimes in Iraq. And that's why the U.S. government has a hard-on to take down Julian Assange and make his life miserable. That's why he embarrassed our military and powerful interests in this country. And it's very similar to what happened with the Pentagon Papers and what happened with um, Daniel Ellsberg. That we learned that we were using napalm and Agent Orange and killing innocent civilians, killing villages full of innocent people. We learned that. And eventually people realized, oh my God, the leakers, the whistleblowers are heroes because they're exposing wrongdoing and that's the only way we could fix something is if we know we're doing it wrong. And so Americans sort of rose up and said, this is unacceptable. Same thing with Iraq and WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. So should you pardon a guy who his crime is being a whistleblower and doing the job of a journalist? I'm going to show you what powerful people are doing. I'm going to show you what your government is doing. And what your government is doing is illegal and unconstitutional and wrong. And I'm going to show you. Of course that guy deserves a pardon. That guy's a hero. Edward Snowden, same thing. He 
worked for the NSA or some contractor affiliated with the NSA, and he saw, oh, my God, we're effectively spying on all Americans. We're tracking the metadata of all Americans. This is wildly against the Constitution. You have a protection from unreasonable search and seizure in the Constitution, and they're just ignoring that, and they're spying on everybody. That's what the Patriot Act is doing. This is insane. This isn't just to get terrorists. I mean, these are heroes. So I hope Pamela Anderson gets through to Trump. I hope Trump pardons Assange and Snowden. And, you know, if he were to do it, it would be because Pamela Anderson could convince him. And also he just wants to stick it to everybody who hates Assange and Snowden, who also hate him. Some people in the deep state, the intelligence agencies. But, you know, you never know. I mean, Trump pardoned war criminals, which is like the polar opposite of pardoning people like Assange and Snowden. So is he going to do it? Who knows? But we all hope he will. Okay. Next. There was an article in The Hill that I got to bring up for you all because there's a, there's a message here. Democrats see Georgia as a model for success across the South. Now, is that a positive thing? Well, absolutely that's a positive thing because what they did in Georgia worked. Now, the only problem with that article is I read it and they don't even mention one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, why the Democrats won in Georgia, which is $2,000 checks. That was the entire closing message. Warnock and Ossoff, I think at least one of them ran ads that were just like, vote for me, you will get a $2,000 check. Joe Biden did a rally there where he said, vote Democrat and you're going to get a $2,000 check. It was the main closing argument. And it worked really well. So I don't know how they can write an article saying Democrats see Georgia as a model for success across the South and not say, hey, they need to keep running on direct cash relief for people. They don't say that. They just talk about, you know, like the Stacey Abrams model and like sign up more people, basically. Like that's what they talk about. Like, oh, increased black turnout. But they don't say what exactly led to that increased black turnout. I'm sure an element of it is a backlash against Trump and Trumpism. But the main argument they're making was vote for us, you get $2,000 checks. That's important. But they don't, they don't discuss it. So I'm here to remind them that's the secret sauce. It's not that difficult. A new poll came out from Data for Progress. $2,000 checks continue to be incredibly popular with the American electorate. 80% support a one-time $2,000 payment. 60% support recurring $2,000 payments. And 62% support retroactive $2,000 payments. This is an issue that is, it's open and shut, dog. It's open and shut. It's not even close. It's right there. I mean, you're talking 60% support a recurring $2,000 payment. So in other words, people are in favor of universal basic income. People are in favor of social security for all. They are. And so, I mean, the problem would be, of course, if they really, if the Democrats really do abandon it. They've already semi-abandoned it, but not fully. So let me explain. They were running on, vote for us, you'll get a $2,000 check. That's what they were running on. Now, now that they won... Biden saying, oh, 
I meant 1400 on top of the 600 you just got to make a total of 2000 Okay, that's a little different. There's debate as to whether or not that was clear from the beginning or not. You know, I happen to think $2,000 more is the correct thing to do, not another 1400 to hit a total of 2000 But listen, okay, whatever, that part's debatable. I'll grant you that, right? But then they moved the goalpost one more time and said, oh, I'm unveiling a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And the 1400 more is in that package. Along with it is like a bunch of other stuff. And I'm going to try to do it through a bipartisan approach, not through reconciliation where I need 51 votes. I'm going to try to get 60 and get Republican support. Okay, well, now you're sort of fucking with us, aren't you? Because that's not going to happen. And if you don't get the 60 votes, are you going to say, well, then fuck it, I'll do it through reconciliation? Or are you going to say, woe is me, I can't get it through, it is what it is? If they don't find a way to get you at least another 1,400, but really ideally 2,000, but if they don't find a way to get you at least another 1,400, then it doesn't matter. Like, the Republican Party is a mess, and they're fractured, and there's a civil war that's going to happen there. And so I'm not saying they're definitely going to win. But you just took what would be sure layups in future elections for Democrats, and you blew it because you went back on the core promise on the key issue. So listen to the people, man. Listen to the people. Those, those polls don't lie. And, you know, that's the takeaway. This even happened in the election where, like, Trump won Florida in the election, but the minimum wage increase was passed through a direct ballot initiative where people voted directly to increase the minimum wage. How is that possible? And listen, when you give people specific issues, they almost always pick the left-wing direction. There are exceptions, but oftentimes it's because of relentless propaganda where they just lie about the ballot issue. But the overwhelming majority of the time, if you put a left-wing idea on a ballot, people vote for the left-wing idea because they like the left-wing idea. So Democrats, be more left-wing, embrace these ideas, argue for these ideas, and that'll lead to the victories. I mean, I'm, I'm, this segment is obvious because I'm saying things that are like, duh, but they need to be reminded. You can't write an article about how do we replicate our Georgia successes without bringing up the main thing, arguably, that led to that success. They better not let everybody down. They better not do it. But unfortunately, their whole game is like, we're at least better than these idiots on the right, so I guess you got to vote for us, huh? If you fall back into that mindset and that approach, then you cannot be surprised when there's always a pendulum swing and it goes back and forth and you're always roughly 50-50. You know, you can have crushing victories. You can have super majorities if you did the right thing and you fought for the right things. But you have to actually do it. Okay, next. Oh, you gotta change the change the lights behind me, bitch. I have to tell you guys, it's been really, really strange watching Morning Joe go through some sort of transition where he's trying to become more left or portraying himself as more left. So this clip is something. We already showed you the one where they sort of praise FDR. Morning Joe and his guests like praise FDR. Now look at this. Suddenly, they're arguing for Medicare for all. The thing about, that I just want to mention to you, uh, 
as a conservative, Joe, and, and, and your conservative listeners, universal health is so not socialism. Universal health, I've always thought the argument should be made that it's perfect for this flexible labor country, right? It, it, it would allow people to quit their jobs, take new jobs, move for jobs, quit to start businesses, take a huge burden off small businesses. So I, we need to just keep on explaining the facts and the truth. It's a long haul. And, and uh, you know, I look at, I look at the 40-year cycle of the New Deal being the set of norms and rules we had, then the last 40 years this what I call the raw deal. Well, I believe in history, uh, cycles of history really happen, and, and I'm hopeful that we are on the, at the beginning of a, of a new cycle. Was that, it's interesting you, you, you talk about universal health care. What I always explain to my conservative friends uh, who are so offended by that concept and say it's radical socialism and it will destroy the very nature of America. First of all, I've got to say, and I will say this again, I've said it on the show for a decade, one of my favorite polls uh, is it was a poll of self-identified Tea Partiers. It's not like 80% of those people did not want the federal government to be involved in health care. 75% of those people then said, you better not touch my Medicare, which of course shows the hypocrisy there. But we already have a guarantee of the United States of America for universal health care. If you walk into an emergency room, they have to take you. And then guess what happens when you walk into that emergency room? I'll go to Senator Kerry because he knows it. It is so inefficient. The charges are so grossly exaggerated, and they're doing it because they're afraid they're not going to get the money back, and it ends up costing Americans billions and billions of dollars more. You, you don't treat people that have diabetes early on, but then there's going to be a requirement that you amputate their legs. You don't take care of people early on with preventative care for diabetes, Senator Kerry. Guess what? Every American will be paying for that, their dialysis later on. Somebody must have poisoned his cornflakes, because I've never heard him talk like this, ever. If anything, he was like the epitome of smug corporatism and neoliberalism inside, you know, the belly of the beast. But here he is. Again, the last clip we showed was him praising FDR with this particular guest. This guest has really changed him. Or again, you can determine whether or not you think it's genuine, sincere, or if it's, you know, he's just angling for whatever reason. We don't need to get into that. But listen, the points there are absolutely correct. So yet again, what trick worked? When you, dis when you explain these things as bolstering capitalism, all of a sudden, these guys are disarmed. And they're like, I like that because I like capitalism. So what does he do? He argues universal health care works really well under capitalism. And effectively, the argument is because it gives you more freedom. So like when you have health care tied to your job, well, that's a big burden on your job to pay for that. And it also means it's harder for you to leave if you want to leave and start a new business or find a new job because you're sort of married to the job just to get the health care. That's a very, like you're shackled in that sense. That's not a good system at all. And so the argument is, hey, if you have universal health care, you free up people and you free up businesses. And so it gives you more options. And what, you know, these guys love, choice. They talk about it in glowing terms. And it's like, well, if it increases choice, that's great. The argument I've made before is that, yeah, you actually do have more choice and more freedom under a Medicare for All system. Medicare for All system, you could pick whatever doctor you want. You can pick whatever doctor you want. 
under our current system, you can't because your insurance company has in-network and out-of-network. Where like, there are some doctors who they say, you can't go to that doctor because they're not in our network. So they restrict freedom. Our current system restricts freedom. Um, another interesting point is the guy says there's like a cycle. And so sometimes we go through neoliberal phases and other times we go through social democratic phases. I don't know if I buy the idea that there's a cycle on that because it seems to me like moneyed interests, as soon as they were allowed, as soon as the Supreme Court basically ruled money is free speech and you could do unlimited contributions to politicians, that kind of made it so that money has a stranglehold and there's not really a cycle. The money forces the system through corruption to stay in this corporatist neoliberal phase. That's my view of it. I actually hope it's more of a cycle because then it would be easier to break, break free to the next part, which would be a social democratic approach, another FDR type era. Um, and then Joe makes the point, listen, for universal healthcare, you're going to pay for it anyway. So like if you have an undocumented immigrant who comes to the U.S., they need healthcare for whatever reason, they go to the emergency room, they get the healthcare, and they don't have the money to pay for it. Taxpayers end up paying for it anyway. But the question is, hey, do you want to have a system where you have to pay for it anyway and the health care provider is price gouging you and the health insurance company is price gouging you and they have ridiculous margins? Or do you want to have a system where you pay for it, but the prices are more reasonable because there is no middleman health insurance company price gouging you and the private doctors aren't price gouging you because that's also regulated in an effective way now because it's a government system? I mean, obviously the answer is, you want to pay and pay a more reasonable price, right? So, I mean, listen, he's right. And it's amazing to see this turn. I hope it continues. I welcome everybody to being correct about stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's sincere. But it is interesting to me that the framing that gets these guys to agree is like, oh, FDR saved capitalism. Because if he didn't do the New Deal, we would have had some sort of either communist revolution or fascist revolution. So that's why the FDR model is correct. And again, for this argument, they say, well, universal health care works because under capitalism, it gives you more freedom. Whatever arguments are getting them to agree with the proper ideas, I don't care as long as they agree with the proper idea. So we're there now, but who knows, with Morning Joe, it is likely temporary. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, I got three more for you. CNN advocates censorship. Romney and Lindsey Graham get people on the no-fly list, and, uh, and much more. So much more as in one more beyond that. I want to tell you about the success story of vaccine distribution in one particular state. That state is West Virginia. So you don't want to miss it. Stay right there, everybody. I'll talk to you in about, about five to eight minutos. Stay right there.
All right, CNN pissed me off quite a bit. Let's talk about that. In the wake of the diet coup or attempted insurrection at Capitol Hill, CNN is responding by um, more aggressively advocating censorship and deplatforming than I've ever seen them do previously. So let's take a look. This is Brian Stelter uh, talking to one of his guests. The guest is supposed to be an expert on this kind of stuff. Let's see what they have to say. I think we've got to do a couple things. One, there needs to be an intentional work by the social media companies collaborating together to work on violent extremism in the same way they worked on ISIS. When I started at Facebook in 2015, the number one challenge from a content perspective was the abuse of social media by the Islamic State. Um, And there was a, a collaboration between the tech companies and between the tech companies and law enforcement to make it impossible for them to use the Internet to recruit and radicalize Young, mostly young Muslim men at the time around the world. Now we're talking about domestic audience in the United States. And the challenge is going to be partially that you know, ISIS did not have a domestic constituency in the United States Congress. But there is over half of the Republicans in Congress voted to overturn the election. Um, and there will be a continual political pressure on the, the companies to not take it seriously. So I think first you have to focus on those violent extremists, and those companies have to be brave in that way. And second, we have to turn down the capability of these conservative influencers to reach these huge audiences. There are people on YouTube, for example, that have a larger daytime, a larger audience than daytime CNN, and they are extremely radical and pushing extremely uh, radical views. And so it's up to the Facebooks and YouTubes in particular to think about whether or not they want to be effectively cable networks for disinformation. And then we're going to have to figure out the OANN and Newsmax problem. You know, that these companies have freedom of speech, but I'm not sure we need Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, and such to be bringing them into tens of millions of homes. Um, I, this is you know, allowing people to seek out information if they really want to, but not pushing it into their faces, I think is where we're going to have to go here. Okay, so this, there's a lot here that I disagree with. But first, let me say, um, I, I view it as obvious that Newsmax, One American News Network, Trump, when he was doing this on a daily basis, the whole the nonsense, the rigged election, fraudulent election, and then the insane conspiracies they came up with to justify that, it's all wrong. And it's all... and. There's no evidence for any of it. There's no proof for any of it. In fact, the, uh, one of the companies that you know, distributed the voting machines or created the voting machines, they've now waged like a bunch of lawsuits or threatened to wage a bunch of lawsuits. And so a lot of these outlets, including like Newsmax or One American News Network, one of them, they had to do like on-air apologies to be like, yeah, there's no evidence for any of this stuff. So oops, are bad. And they're doing that because it, it might, it would have gone to court and they would have lost and, you know, basically these companies could have been bankrupted because they're doing like libel and slander and defamation on a regular basis. So even with our incredibly lax free speech laws, as, as it should be, I'm a free speech absolutist, even with those, they know like, oh, we would have lost if it went to court. So anyway, the point I wanted to make up front is I don't view it as in dispute as to how unhealthy and wrong that stuff is for society and for politics. 
Like, I, I 1 million percent agree with the harshest critics of these people that it's toxic. A lot of this stuff is purely toxic. But I do think that all of these ideas that they're either flirting with or outright advocating for would create even bigger problems than they're trying to solve. And I, I'm, it scares me that you can see people, liberals are already down this path big time, like democratic types, but even some leftists sort of agree with this stuff. And that's terrifying to me because they don't know what they're asking for. Okay, so let's go through some of this. Um, he says social media companies need to collaborate on violent extremism like they did with ISIS. So they're saying, oh, collaborate on violent extremism of the domestic variety in the same way that they did with ISIS. Well, first of all, I don't even know exactly what they did on ISIS, but to the extent that there's any crackdown, it's not that hard to crack down when there's like beheadings being posted on social media because beheadings are, of course, wildly illegal in every country on earth. And so you can go after those people and prosecute them for the freaking crimes that they're committing. So it's not like the issue wasn't just a social media issue. The issue was like, oh, hey, the worst crimes imaginable. They're being rubbed in our faces. Well, obviously, something should be done about this. But what are you talking about in terms of the domestic audience? Like, what exactly do you want Twitter, Facebook, YouTube to do about this stuff? So he continues, make it impossible for them to use the Internet to recruit and radicalize. There's no way to do that unless you fully ban, like, that entire political genre and political ideology. I don't know how you, like, of course, if you allow people to speak freely, some people are going to be fucking crazy, and some other crazy people are going to listen to those crazy people and maybe do crazy things. You can't say the solution is to, quote, make it impossible for them to use the Internet to recruit and radicalize, because that's not possible unless you do a full authoritarian crackdown and just say anything that I don't like or anything that might be borderline, we got to get rid of it. Like, that's the ultimate logic of this argument that they're making. Then they say, turn down the capability of conservative influencers to reach these audiences. How? How? Listen, these people are my direct competition, whether it's Steven Crowder or Ben Shapiro, whoever you want to name that's like more of an independent or new media. They're not independent really, but new media conservatives. These people are my direct competition. So if I was selfish, I'd be like, yeah, clamp down on them and then bolster my stuff because that would help me. But it, no, it goes, it goes beyond selfish motives here. The fact of the matter is it's a package deal. Any kind of turning down of their capability to reach audiences would also turn down me, would also turn down Humanist Report, Rational, National, you name it. Every single you know, left-wing show that you can think of all of us would be screwed under an algorithm where they say, oh, the fringe right-wingers need to be tamped down because they view us as fringe left-wingers. Now, you would say, well, Kyle, the things you say are true. The things they say are false. Yes, but you can't just ban people saying false things. You can't do that. That is deeply authoritarian. You're allowed to be wrong about stuff. You are. As long as you're not doing direct threats of violence, as long as you're not doing like provable, demonstrable libel, slander, defamation, well, then you have to let people say whatever the hell they want to say. So when they say turn down the capability of conservative influencers to reach these audiences, well, congratulations to the people who agree with this, because, yes, it is those exact same algorithms that screw channels like mine. 
you know, and I've told you guys, we know because there's numbers on the back end of YouTube where you can track this stuff. Back during the, the 2016 election, we grew at an amazing rate. And one of the main reasons for that is our stuff would be recommended all over YouTube. You could be watching a video from CNN and then get recommended a secular talk video, and you watch it, and you like it, and you subscribe. What YouTube did is they cracked down on what they call borderline content, which is not the extremist stuff, but it's borderline as to whether or not it's extreme. And then they reduce the amount that my content gets shown to new audiences. So in other words, like if you've been watching this show for a long time, yes, you'll get recommended secular talk videos. You'll get them you know, popping up in your feed on YouTube. But if you're not already watching it, it's a lot harder to come across it because they, they stopped recommending it like they used to recommend it because I'm borderline. This, these kinds of algorithms are what they're talking about. And they want to do it to stop Ben Shapiro and to stop Steven Crowder and to stop, you know, the Newsmax types and the One American News Networks types. I get it. They have ter- a terrible ideology and they're wrong about virtually everything. But any attempt to crack down on them has the unintended consequences, and maybe it's intended, of cracking down on me and cracking down on all the left-wing commentators that you enjoy. That's just how it works. That's how it works. There's no way around it. And they even say there, like, a lot of these people are bigger than CNN. Yeah, whose problem is that? Whose fault is that? It's your guy's fault. You have shitty content. I'm sorry, but it's true. They, they don't do a good job. I mean, they pushed Russiagate relentlessly, and they were wrong about every single thing they said. So maybe that's the problem, is that you're not interesting, you're not entertaining, you don't do a good job. Maybe that's the problem. You push conspiracy theories. Now, by the way, that's the other point here, which is, so they want to crack down on the things that they view as bad conspiracy theories. Now, I happen to agree on this one, that it's a bad conspiracy, the whole fraudulent election, rigged election nonsense. But they're not going to be objective, because they're not saying, like, YouTube rules, Facebook rules, Twitter rules should crack down on conspiracies, full stop. They're saying just the ones I don't like. Because the people over at CNN, the people on this panel, these people bought into Russiagate wholesale, and they were provably wrong. They were provably wrong. Yes, some people in the Trump administration went down, but it had nothing to do with Russia. It had to do with corruption, like General Flynn, for example, and his, you know, back-channel connections. It wasn't about Russia. Sorry, I know a lot of people, for their emotional well-being, want it to be that, but it's not that. They had crazy conspiracies. Donald Trump, a Manchurian candidate, agent of Russia since 1987. Provably wrong. But this was a mainstream belief. It was a very common belief. Now, should your stuff get banned, deplatformed, deprioritized in the algorithm as a result of that? Listen, what CNN wants, what MSNBC wants, what Fox News wants, it's very simple, it's very straightforward, it's very clear. They want to be the go-to sources for everybody when it comes to news and politics. They want YouTube, they want all the social media outlets to pump out and prioritize their stuff above and beyond everybody else, okay? So it doesn't matter if you're leaning right and you like the independent right-wing people, or you lean left, you like the independent left-wing people, you like new media outlets that are, you know, a little smaller in nature but on the way up. They want to make sure they quash the competition and, and have them be the only game in town. The only game in town. And they even, listen, they even admit it that last point there, it's like they cross that line. They're trying to cloak it a little bit, but they cross that line at the end when they say, oh, like One American News Network and Newsmax, they have free speech. They can say what they want to say, but Verizon doesn't have to carry them. AT&T doesn't have to carry them. Comcast doesn't have to carry them. So in other words, 
go after the provider to effectively censor and deplatform them, even while you make the Weasley argument like, well, you could say whatever you want to say, but there are consequences for it. Take that logic and apply it on all the other social media outlets. You could say what you want to say, but there are consequences of it. You could say you think it's a fraudulent election, a rigged election, but we're going to ban you from Twitter. You could say whatever you want to say, but there are consequences. Okay, well, can you could say whatever you want to say about the JFK assassination, but it's a conspiracy and we're going to have to get rid of you. There are consequences if you say the wrong. You could say whatever you want to say about 9-11. There are consequences, but we're going to... Guys, how many times have I made this point? That if these outlets were around in the lead up to the Iraq war, they would be banning the people or deprioritizing or deplatforming the people who were correct and saying there are no weapons of mass destruction. Because the consensus was there are weapons of mass destruction and Saddam Hussein is a threat. So if you were a truth teller, you would have been banned. The Syria example, people went after anybody who questioned the Syrian gas attacks or the source of the Syrian gas attacks. They were maligned and smeared and called conspiracy theorists. CNN wrote articles about that. And then come to find out, we had whistleblowers who came out and were like, actually, they were right. So in other words, it's not really like, what's the truth? And then we're going to ban people who don't tell the truth and prop up people who tell the truth. No. People are flawed. People are human beings. What they're calling for is a situation where Let's ban or deplatform or censor or deprioritize all the people who are not ideologically in agreement with me or who get in the way of me and my interests. That's what they're doing. And they're acting like it's some sort of virtuous crusade that they're on to get the truth out there in the mainstream. Utter nonsense. Complete and utter nonsense. Listen, I don't like any of the right-wing new media outlets at all. I hate One American News Network. I hate Newsmax. I think they're terrible. I think they have a genuinely negative effect on the public. But I also understand there is no such thing as a ministry of truth. Because then who's going to watch the watchmen? So you cannot micromanage and police the discourse and censor and deplatform and deprioritize all willy-nilly. Because guess what? Whoever's making those decisions, they have their own biases. They have their own perspectives. They have their own flaws. They believe in their own conspiracies, even though they swear up and down that they don't believe in conspiracies. So never, never fall for the idea that we could fix this by proposing solutions that are creating even bigger problems. We have to stand by in a principled way and say that free speech is important. I'm not saying it's a First Amendment issue because it's not. That involves the government in speech. This is not the government. But it for shit sure is the principle of free speech. As much as I hate Newsmax, as much as I hate One American News Network, as much as I hate Ben Shapiro, as much as I hate Stephen Crowder, as much as I hate anybody who's pushing these bogus ideas and this terrible ideology, and I hate them more than anybody. You can't ban them. You shouldn't deprioritize them. You have to handle this like adults. And so what does that mean? Listen, it, it means do what I used to do all the fucking time when Alex Jones was not banned from these platforms. I would play the clip of the shit he said, and then I would debunk every single goddamn thing he said. That's what you do. You know, try like... I don't know, becoming likable and entertaining and fact-checking in a way that's correct. You know, maybe that's how you limit the influence of some of these outlets. I mean, that's the thing. is They don't reckon with the fact that there's a reason why people don't really turn to CNN and MSNBC for their, you know, for the truth in the world. These outlets have been wrong so many times and have lied to them so many times that people are like, I'm looking for a new place to get information. 
and they happen to fall in the they happen to answer it in the wrong ways. Okay, plenty of people will go crazy and turn to One American News Network and Newsmax, and they're arguably not arguably they're definitely more wrong than the traditional media outlets. But I wouldn't ban One American News Network. I wouldn't ban Newsmax. I wouldn't ban CNN or MSNBC or Fox News because that is authoritarian. That is that that is what it is. It should be an open system where you can go wherever the hell you want to go and everybody's treated equally by the algorithms. But by the way, in that system, we'd be way bigger than we are because we've been tamped down on since the borderline content rules went into place a few years ago. So I just don't know how to get across to people this very basic idea that authoritarianism is bad. Censorship as a general rule, deplatforming, deprioritizing, all that stuff is really bad. And you're now seeing it pop up in a bunch of different ways. But since we had the Capitol Hill insurrection and the diet coup attempt, now people are more open to authoritarian approaches because they think, oh, we need it to keep us safe. Well, guys, this is the exact same shit that happened in the wake of 9-11. The arguments were like, well, we need to do this to keep us safe. We need to do the Patriot Act to keep us safe. You're going to have to sacrifice a little bit of liberty and a little freedom for security. These were the arguments that were made. And listen, it's total bullshit. There's another article from AP that just came out. I'm going to read you the title. Extremists exploit a loophole in social moderation. So now they're saying, well, Steve Bannon has a podcast. Steve Bannon pushes bad ideas. His podcast should be banned. You can't just ban people for being wrong, for promoting conspiracies. You can't ban people for having a bad ideology. You can't do that. I mean, that is the definition of authoritarianism. And you could try to cloak it in the idea that we're virtuous and we're moral and we're just and we're right. But that's not true. None of that stuff is true. You know, AOC said that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook are responsible for what happened at the insurrection. As much as I hate Mark Zuckerberg and as much as I hate Facebook, no, they're not. If, if terrorists plan an attack and they do it on the phone, they call each other and coordinate everything on the phone. Does anybody say, AT&T, you need to ban not only these people who are terrorists, but ban anybody who's a potential terrorist from using your service? Nobody says that. In fact, people think that's absurd. Why? Because everybody understands that's not the way phone companies work. That's not the way the provider works. It's just there. So they're not in the business of micromanaging and filtering and censoring. and they, They're not in that business. Why is it people understand that with AT&T? Nobody wants to shut down the phone company or ban all potential criminals or terrorists from making phone calls. But when it comes to Twitter or Facebook, all of a sudden everybody wants incredible censorship and deplatforming and, and to micromanage it all. Why? Why is that? Why is that? It's real. Ins- it's, I'm sorry. It's insanity. And these people don't know what they're asking for because I guarantee you it will come back to bite you in the ass if you support it 100%. We've already seen it. It's not even up in the air. How many times have I told you guys? The Red Scare... Uh, podcast. They were banned on Twitter. Why? I have no idea. Um, the Chapo Trap House Reddit, they were banned. Why? I have no idea. You want to talk about lefties being censored? Anybody who's like a Marxist or communist or anarchist, oh, they're the first on the freaking shopping block. People who really question power and authority are the first ones to bear the brunt of censorship. It always is the case. Always. And so, again, talk to Max Blumenthal or Ben Norton or Abby Martin or Rania Kalik, the Gray Zone. Talk to any of these. out. They, they've experienced it firsthand. They know. They know. Again, I only know just the deprioritizing angle, which is bad enough. But 
Of course this is going to happen. So anyway, careful what you wish for, man. I've never seen, it's a very, very openly authoritarian environment at the moment as a result of genuinely bad people doing genuinely bad things at the Capitol, egged on by One American News Network, Newsmax, and the President of the United States. They're definitely to blame, at least partially, for what happened. They are. But what do we do in response to that? Do we just ban everything? I say hell no to that. And if you say hell yes to that, again, it's going to come back to bite you in the ass, so be ready for that. Okay, next. I thought this was interesting. This is from Mediaite. Trump fans who harassed Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham put on no-fly list. Huh. So Chuck Schumer was actually calling for everybody who was at the Capitol Hill riot, insurrection, diet coup, whatever you want to call it. Chuck Schumer was saying they should all be on the no-fly list. He didn't even make a distinction between people who stormed in, people who were violent. He didn't make any distinctions. He just said, put them on the no-fly list. Well, now we have the people who harassed Romney and Lindsey Graham put on the no-fly list. Now, I saw the Lindsey Graham video. I didn't see the Romney video, to be fair. I saw the Lindsey Graham video. They were just saying he's a traitor, and he abandoned Trump, and they hate him, basically. That's the gist of what they were saying. Were they violent? No, I didn't see any violence. Maybe I missed that part of the video, in which case that would be a different story if they were violent. But I didn't see any violence. And so let me get to the main point. Let me cut to the chase here. The no-fly list is actually on its own, absurd. And here's why. There's no legal process where you get put on it. It's just the gov- whoever the government thinks is a problem. Do- they don't have to present evidence, no proof, no nothing. No process, no going in front of a judge. It's just, we think maybe these people are problems, so we're just going to ban them from flying. Well, I mean, civil libertarians will tell you that's not, you can't, the government shouldn't be able to do that. They could just Assume or guess? We think maybe you're a problem. Shouldn't there be some sort of process to determine that before you say you can't fly? And so now here we have a situation where people were just being assholes to Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham, and now they're never allowed to fly. I don't support that. Now, listen, on this particular question, I think Romney and Graham are correct, and they're not. On the question of, hey, is the election fraudulent and rigged? No, it's not. Is Joe Biden the president, the rightful president? See, the president-elect about to be the president. Yes. So I agree with them on the substance of the question, but if somebody disagrees and they're being a dick about it, should the government be able to say, we're never going to let you fly on a plane again? And I don't even think there's a process to get off that list. There's nothing these people could do now. They're just screwed. I don't agree with that, man. I don't agree with that. Um, That's too much power for the government to be able to just casually do that full stop, you know? Um, And I'm not even necessarily against treating politicians like this in public. Never do violence, but if you were to go up to a Republican or a corporate Democrat and shame them, I'm in favor of using shame for corporate Democrats and Republicans. Not for my ideological allies. I I want to be more constructive that way. But for elected Republicans and corporate Democrats, yeah, these tactics, I'm totally fine with it. And by the way, they scared these guys. It scared at least Graham. And Graham went on Hannity the next night and was trying to defend Trump in a different way. 
because he knows he was losing the base. So I'm not even against necessarily these tactics, but I do think the government response here is going too far. And I used to think, I used to be in favor of the no-fly list until I learned more about it. And I was like, oh, this is just totally made up and authoritarian. So anyway, you let me know what you guys think. I get it that these people are assholes, and I get it that they're totally brainwashed on One American News Network and Fox, uh, One American News Network, Newsmax, some Fox News, and Trump. I get it, but I think this is too punitive. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. Here's a story that nobody else is going to talk about, but I think the, uh, the lesson here is important, and it's actually really interesting. So Alex Leo says, I did a dive today into why West Virginia is so rapidly outpacing other states in their vaccine distribution, and it turns out one reason is they did not sign the agreement with CVS and Walgreens that 49 other states did. For one thing, West Virginia has been charting its own path to vaccine distribution. All 49 other states signed on with the federal program partnering with CVS and Walgreens to vaccinate long-term care and assisted living facilities, but those chain stores are less common in West Virginia, so the state instead took charge of delivering its vaccine supply to 250 pharmacies, most of them small independent stores. This is amazing. This is amazing. So, so West Virginia is by far doing the best with vaccination in the country, in the entire country. It's a relatively small state. It's a very right-wing state. Um, but they're kicking everybody's ass when it comes to vaccination. And that's the reason why. Every other state signed a deal with Walgreens and CVS where it was basically like, you guys are going to go vaccinate people in nursing homes and, and older folks. So here, we'll sign the deal with you and you go do it. Jim Justice, the um, governor of West Virginia, was like, we don't have that many CVSs and Walgreens here. So no, step aside, son. We're going to take care of it. The federal, the, excuse me, not federal government. The state government is going to take care of it. We're going to get those vaccines out to the small pharmacies and we're going to actively aid in vaccinating. Well, now they're kicking everybody's ass. So what does this show you? What does this show you? This shows you that sometimes fishing this stuff out to the, to the private market, to corporations, contracting out to them, sometimes that doesn't work better. Sometimes it actually works worse. And all it took was the political will to actually do some shit on your own for a state government to actually take action and be aggressive and be fast and be competent. And when the state government dedicated itself to that, you have a a small state, a relatively poor state, and a very right-wing state, everybody's ass because of how they decided to distribute their vaccine. It says a lot, man. Don't ever tell me that, oh, government can't do anything right. Sometimes government does stuff better. They just need to have the will to do it. You know, that's it. You have to have the will and then you have to have the competence and you have to work smart and work fast. Leadership is really important. And this is an instance where there was leadership. Sure, I don't agree with Jim Justice on a million things. On this, they did a good job. The state government of West Virginia did a superb job. So, and listen, yes, there's a lot to say now. CVS and Walgreens, they're fucking up. The leadership isn't nearly strong enough. The leadership isn't nearly good enough. And I'm sure that there was some sort of terrible situation where they're getting paid too much to do it as they're fucking up and the state government did not take matters into their own hands and this is the result 
We thought, ah, just fish it out to the corporations, and look at what happened. So we need to start believing that government can do things again and be proactive and be competent and be intelligent and actually work on shit. Like, do the work, for fuck's sake. Do the fucking work. It's an incredible story. And I hope everybody's learning their lesson, and I hope everybody can rededicate to this idea that perhaps government can work if we make it work and if we put in the time and put in the effort and we're intelligent about it and if we're competent. All right, guys. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of your Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I love you very much, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.